High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. As you may or may not be aware, each episode in our current season is in some way related to Hollywood Frame by Frame, a book written by yours truly, compiling contact sheets from still photo sessions on classic movies, which is available now from Amazon or your local bookseller. Amongst many other things, this book includes photos taken on the set of The Godfather, Francis Ford Coppola's 1972 mafia family masterpiece, which show 47-year-old Marlon Brando being made up to look like the 60-something Don Corleone. If you're listening to this podcast, you've probably seen The Godfather, and maybe you know that, along with Stanley Kowalski, Sky Masterson, Terry Malloy, and Colonel Kurtz, the Don became a signature role for Brando. And maybe you also know that Marlon Brando was an actor who redefined both screen acting and celebrity, beginning with his film debut in the early 1950s, setting a standard for the new Hollywood generation of actors like Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, and Dustin Hoffman. 
and also donating his DNA to today's actorly male stars, from Ryan Gosling to Tom Hardy and beyond. But what you may or may not know is that before The Godfather was released, as far as Hollywood and a good segment of their public was concerned, Marlon Brando was old news, damaged goods, virtually uncastable, and definitely unbankable. To the people who paid to make movies, he was box office poison. And to the people who went to see movies, Brando was simply uncool. This is the story of how, over the course of just about two years, Marlon Brando went from persona non grata in the movie business to starring in two of the biggest zeitgeist movies of the early 1970s, earning back-to-back Oscar nominations and completely reviving his reputation. It's also the story of how Brando used his restored clout to draw attention to his personal pet causes, holding up a giant middle finger to Hollywood and everything it stood for in the process. Join us, won't you? As we learn about Marlon Brando from 1971 to 1973. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I frequently have this experience in therapy where I tell my analyst something that is happening or happened with someone else, and they ask me how I feel about it, and then they ask me if I have told the person in question how I feel, and a lot of the time my answer is nope, because just telling the analyst is kind of enough. We all carry around different stressors, big and small, When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Everyone needs a sounding board. Just talking to a therapist about what's going on can make you feel better. Other times, a therapist can offer strategies or new ways to frame the difficulty you're having. Maybe you'll leave your session with action items that you can work on. Or maybe just talking it through will give you the perspective you need to make changes. But therapy is a good first step to figuring that out. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash YMRT today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash YMRT. It's difficult to overestimate the impact Marlon Brando had when he first burst onto the scene in the late 1940s. He was simply a new kind of star. A graduate of Stella Adler's acting studio who had been flexing his muscles in minor plays, he was spotted on stage by Elia Kazan and invited to audition for the first Broadway production of A Streetcar Named Desire. He got the part, and Brando soon became a sensation. His style, his interpretation of Stella Adler's version of Stanislavski's teachings was so emotionally raw, his speech so apparently unpolished, 
that people often didn't think he was acting at all. As one of Brando's biggest fans, Pauline Kael, would later report, the first time she saw him on stage, she felt bad for this poor young actor who seemed to be having some kind of seizure. And then she realized he was doing it on purpose. And then there was the way he looked. At once sturdy and pouty, hard and soft, Brando looked like a full-grown man who was holding on to some kind of essential pain of being a child. With the film of a streetcar named Desire, with his muscles rippling out of his skin-tight t-shirts and oil-streaked wife beater, Brando became the first male Hollywood sex symbol that was coded as working class. He also became the first celebrity in the modern sense in that he was an actual person stalked by a hostile media and paparazzi, and not a star invented by a studio's publicity department and defined by a press kept in the pocket of said studio. On screen, Brando became synonymous with a certain kind of authenticity, a realism. But off screen, he worked hard to make sure no one knew the real him. Austin Wilkin is the archivist for the Marlon Brando estate. He's been that way since he was before he was famous. He never he when he was doing plays before he became famous on Broadway, all of the bios in his playbills are lies. So he was he's in because of that he's impossible to nail down. And his stories changed throughout the decades. What do we know for sure to be true about Marlon Brando? He was born in Nebraska in 1924. His mother was an actress who is said to have discovered Henry Fonda. She was also a drunk. Brando had an even more difficult, traumatic relationship with his father, who was abusive and impossible to please. And when Brando came to Hollywood, he managed to do an end run around at least one aspect of Hollywood's central patriarchy. He never signed a studio contract. And thus, he was never subject to the artificial branding and persona shaping that most actors of the time had to submit to in order to achieve and maintain their stardom. In fact, somewhere along the line, Marlon Brando became the kind of guy who refused to be pigeonholed at all. Whenever anyone would try to nail him down as any one thing, Marlon would become determined to prove them wrong. So in 1953, after he had been branded a mumbler for his extreme realism, Brando took on Shakespeare, playing the title role in Julius Caesar. A year later, with On the Waterfront, he won his first Oscar and vaulted to the top of the rankings of Hollywood's most bankable stars. Marlon Brando published an autobiography in 1994 called Songs My Mother Taught Me, and in it he revealed just enough juicy detail in order for people who didn't know him at all to think he was being candid without really revealing much of anything. We know from this memoir that he had something like an emotional addiction to eating, that he would always let himself go between movies and was accustomed to losing 30 or 40 pounds right before a job, through eating less, exercise, and the occasional episode of bulimia. In his autobiography, he tells a story of eating a pint of ice cream one night, as he was wont to do, and then throwing it up, as he was also wont to do, and noticing that the vomit was pink, but not thinking too much about it because he had to rush to make a date with a married woman whose husband was out of town. But he got to the broad's house and basically collapsed, and she risked her own reputation to drive him to the hospital, where he was diagnosed with a tear in his esophagus. 
Maybe because Brando loved to embellish, loved to keep the real him to himself, his memoirs are full of no-names-named stories involving his appetites. But there's no question that he was epically promiscuous. He fathered an estimated 17 children with a variety of different women. Some sources will tell you that Brando was married three times. But in fact, only one of his marriages was legally binding, and Brando never lived with any of his wives, although he did have three children with a longtime housekeeper. His last quote-unquote marriage, legal only in Tahiti, was just one of the many mistakes that took place while Brando was shooting the remake of Mutiny on the Bounty. Mutiny on the Bounty is often cited as a flashpoint in Brando's career, the moment when he truly transformed from an asset into a liability. He had caused delays before, sometimes just for the sake of fucking with someone. There's a story from Guys and Dolls where uh, Sinatra famously hated cheesecake. And there's the scene where they're talking about the cheesecake. And Sinatra's eating it during the scene and Brando would keep flubbing his lines. Because Sinatra's famous as a one-take master. And he'd hit the take and, and be done. And so Brando kept fucking with him and kept flubbing his lines. So he had to keep eating cheesecake all day long till they ended. And then it was either the, the last take of the day or the first take the next day. He just nailed the scene from top to bottom. But Mutiny on the Bounty wasn't your run-of-the-mill Hollywood studio production. It was an on-location debacle. As the studio system was collapsing, the stars were getting uh, blamed for any sort of failure that came along. The two most famous ones are Mutiny on the Bounty and Cleopatra. Marlon Brando, he was being accused of driving up the budget. <clears throat> and, then the mu- and then when the movie failed, he got blamed for the movie costing more than it could possibly ever make. Um, the reality of the situation, from my research and everything that, I've, that I know, is that the script was never done, similar to today, where they had a release date, and they said, well, let's just go make it, and the script was never completed, and they went out to Tahiti and spent tons and tons and tons of money, shooting and shooting and shooting and shooting, and he kept trying to fix it. Marlon Brando, also famously, did very little press, but after Mutiny on the Bounty, he did a whole lot of press because he had to defend himself against all the accusations that were coming around. And, uh, and he was defending Elizabeth Taylor as well, because she was getting blamed for the failure of uh, the collapse of Fox. He was getting blamed for the collapse of MGM. But it wasn't them, it was just the time period was changing, everything was changing. And then that ended up sort of kick, kicking off his 60s box office poison non-bankable era. Once, Brando told an interviewer that the only reason why he had stuck around in Hollywood was, quote, because I don't yet have the moral courage to turn down the money. But Austin Wilkin says that was one of many false fronts that Brando put up. In the, in the 1950s, he started making movies because he knew movies had the power to enact change from a social justice point of view. He got into the movies from a social justice point of view and I think that he got that beat out of him through the, the cynicism of Hollywood. So I think that he, he didn't think movies mattered anymore, periodically. Despite his disillusionment, and Hollywood's disillusionment with him, throughout the 1960s, Brando kept working, making between one and three films every year. And he would do them because they were fun. They would do them because he just bought an island in Tahiti and he needed money. I think he still enjoyed the process. 
I think he didn't enjoy the business of it. And he definitely clashed with Charlie Chaplin on the set of A Countess from Hong Kong, a film Brando described as a disaster. Not every movie he made in the 1960s was so disastrous, but none of them made money. After the fact, Brando would refuse to allow that he had made a comeback in the early 1970s, because that would only validate Hollywood's fucked-up manner of measuring a human being's value. In Hollywood, he wrote in his memoir, they congratulate you on your ability to transfer currency from the pockets of the audience to theirs because that's their only measure of success. He didn't acknowledge that his career had been in trouble. He might have been the only one to not acknowledge it. He certainly wasn't a bankable star. People weren't going to see Marlon Brando movies as much as they had been the previous decade. Um, A lot of people tend to equate this with failure of film, that he's making bad films, which if you go back and watch the films, there's excellent films that he made in the 60s. But if you look, a good example of why I think he was not a bankable star, he did an excellent film in 1967 called uh, Reflections in a Golden Eye, starring Marlon Brando, Elizabeth Taylor, directed by John Huston, and it failed at the box office. And the reason I think it failed at the box office is in 1967, the young people didn't want to see their parents' movie stars. These were all 1950s people, 1950s icons, and the generations had just moved on. Mike Nichols, Dustin Hoffman's two years, in two years, Easy Rider would come out, and that was the end of the old era, and the death of the studio system, as it had existed previously. It feels as though his coolness factor had faded. As his career was satisfying him less, Brando started finding new outlets for his passion for social change. He'd later call this era his fuck you years. But if he was a rebel, He was a rebel with several causes. Here's the other side of the 60s that's really important to his story and continues into the 70s is his social activism. He he was a big fan of Martin Luther King. Uh, He was friendly with him. I don't know how deep their friendship went, but he's definitely friendly with him. He was on the dais uh, at the I Have a Dream speech. He did March on Washington. He marched through Southern California. He got a lot of people together. He went on TV a lot to talk about civil rights issues in the early 60s. -hmm. He was definitely hugely active in uh, the civil rights movement, dating back to the 50s. In his draft card for when he signed up for the draft in, uh, for the Korean War, under race, he wrote human. And I think that the fuck you part was most likely the fuck you to the system. That you know, the old system was crumbling, the studio system in Hollywood, but overall, a huge change was happening and he was hyper aware of it. And he was participating in it. And he was walking the walk. When Martin Luther King was assassinated in 68, he quit acting. He was developing a project with Elia Kazan, his favorite director that ever lived, and they killed it because he quit acting. So, obviously he didn't, but (laughs) (laughs) in the moment, that's that's where he was at. In 1969, Brando starred in Burn, Gilo Pontecorvo's follow-up to the Battle of Algiers. It was a movie Brando loved, but it was expensive, and it bombed, so it was considered worthless to those in power in Hollywood. To them, Marlon Brando's market value was at an all-time low. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches... Smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. 
NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. This is how bad he was. This is how unbankable he was as a star. In 1970, he was filming a, a film in Ireland He's, uh, called The Nightcomers. When he sold his production company to MCA Universal in 1966, part of the deal was to uh, do six pictures for Universal. So he had a six-picture deal. Universal wanted so bad to get out of their deal with him that they paid the production company $300,000 to make The Nightcomers a Universal picture so they could end their deal with him. That film came out in 1971. The next film he did was The Godfather. Much has been made of the fact that Paramount didn't want to cast Brando in The Godfather, and that's true. But also, for a long time, The Godfather was a movie Brando didn't want to do. Mario Puzo had sent him the book when it was published, with a note saying that the author thought Brando should play the Don in the inevitable movie. Brando thought that would be a miscasting. He thought he was too young for the role, and he didn't think he could play an Italian. Puzo started writing a script for Paramount, and he would occasionally check in with Brando to see if he had changed his mind, even though Paramount's top executives, Charlie Bludorn and Robert Evans, were dead set against it. They were afraid of Brando's reputation, still lingering from Unity on the Bounty, as a costly liability. Francis Ford Coppola, who had been hired to direct The Godfather because he was Italian, agreed with Puzo that Brando was perfect, and someone came up with the idea that he should do a screen test. Coppola has said that he tricked Brando into it. Austin Wilkins says, I don't believe Coppola, but, this, but, but that might be true. In any case, a screen test was made, and in it, Brando worked out a characterization, doing his own makeup and stuffing cotton balls into his cheeks, so as to look more like the bulldog that he thought Vito Corleone was. Legend has it, the Paramount suits watched the footage and didn't recognize the man on screen as Marlon Brando. And that's how Brando got the job. Stories persist that additional conditions were put on Brando's casting, that he had to accept a pay cut, that he had to agree to financial responsibility for any cost overruns he incurred. This might be true, although it's not readily apparent why Brando would submit to such conditions. I don't know that it would have been that he would that he would have fought for the role. If they had put too many conditions on him, he would have just walked away. He didn't need it if there's too much pushback but i think he also liked challenges so if they said those things because he now had this reputation he's like well now here's an opportunity for me to clear my name and he had a vision for the character 
Brando was determined to play the Don as a quiet, gentle man, more like what Puzo had originally envisioned in the book than the character written into the screenplay. Brando wanted to make the Don come alive as a hero. In the actor's mind, the Mafia wasn't so different from multinationals who carelessly polluted, or the CIA whose assassinations in Vietnam were, as Brando wrote, like the mom's murders in that they were, quote, just business, nothing personal. It had become Brando's habit to only loosely memorize his lines, and then use a combination of cue cards and improv on the day of shooting to maintain spontaneity. But on The Godfather, Brando did even more to alter the script, by doing less. It's not rewriting the script necessarily, it's, it's rearranging words and, and taking the intention that's on the page and making it come out of a human being rather than a robot spewing out what's on the page. There's a lot of the little speeches that uh, that Don has that he just would cut in half. And there's times where he would act it physically when he didn't need to say it. Paramount's Robert Evans hated the dailies. He thought Brando's accent made him totally unintelligible, that they were going to have to use subtitles, that Coppola must be an imbecile if he couldn't get a better performance out of a star who may have been nuts, but was also pretty undeniably the greatest movie actor of his generation. Evans was wrong, of course. The Godfather would go on to become the highest-grossing movie of 1972, and its cultural impact was even more impressive. Brando's profile, in Hollywood and in the public imagination, was completely rejuvenated by the film's success. He'd later make it seem like he hadn't even been aware that he was in need of a hit, which might be true. I think movies were just something that he was doing, and The Godfather was just the next one that came along. He didn't make any significant shift from his point of view. I I don't think. It's impossible to deny what happened as a result of that film, though. And, uh, you know, he's no fool. He knows exactly what happened. Brando ducked out of a number of opportunities to celebrate The Godfather. We'll get to the big infamous one in a bit. But first, he missed the premiere of the film because he was still in Paris, working on his next movie. Last Tango in Paris is one job Marlon Brando may have landed in part because of his so-called antics on another film. Alberto Grimaldi, the producer of Burn, had filed suit against Brando, demanding three-quarters of a million dollars in damages for his, quote, inappropriate behavior on Pontecorvo's film, the Colombian set of which Brando had walked off of to protest the treatment of native extras. But Bernardo Bertolucci wanted Brando for Last Tango, and his cousin-slash-producer Grimaldi agreed to drop his suit against the actor if Brando would take the part for the bargain price of $250,000 up front and 10% of the gross. Brando knew he'd probably lose the lawsuit, so he agreed. When Bertolucci and Brando first started talking about the movie, there was no script, just an idea. Brando would play Paul, an American in Paris who has a brief, intense, sexual, no-strings-attached affair with a much younger woman in the days following his wife's unexplained suicide. It would be an experiment, Bertolucci said, to see if you could make a movie about a relationship that was purely sexual, between two people who didn't even know each other, with no love involved. 
Bertolucci wanted Brando to improvise the whole film, imprinting his own memories and experiences onto the character. To that, Brando was like, well, okay, but I would really like to see a script. Working with editor and screenwriter Franco Arcali, Bertolucci cobbled something together, and in the summer of 1971, after Brando was finished with his work on The Godfather but more than six months before that movie was released, Brando and Bertolucci got together. Some reports say it happened in Paris. Others contend the director came to stay at Brando's Mulholland Drive home. Either way, the director and actor apparently spent the next three weeks together, telling one another their life stories. Brando was reticent at first, but the more Bertolucci opened up, mostly about his own sexual fantasies, the more forthcoming Brando became. The only topic that Brando made explicitly off-limits was that of his children. Around this time, after 12 years of battling with the child's mother, Brando had just finally won custody of his eldest son, Christian, then 13 years old. Not a whole hell of a lot is known about the production of Last Tango in Paris. I haven't found too much on it. There's a lot of speculation about it. It's a very sort of free-formed film. And I think that the, the actors and Bertolucci just sort of... There's a, there's a feeling to it that feels very free-formed. There's, I know there's a script. Um, I've never seen the actual script. Brando claimed he had asked his director if he could attach cue cards to his co-star's naked body. But Brando also claimed that he made up most of his dialogue, and he acknowledged that he based many of Paul's own memories and experiences on his own. Bertolucci was hoping to capture the real Marlon Brando, the one he thought was exposing himself emotionally in their conversations. And many reviews of the film, both from its original release and far into the future, assume that Brando is playing himself. Because of all of the similarities between Paul and known facts of Brando's life, very specific details like a troubled relationship with his dad and a sojourn to Tahiti. It is possible that Bertolucci manipulated Brando into giving more of the real him than he ever had before. But that, according to Austin Wilkin, would be a different matter than playing himself. It's a very interesting performance, and the more I see it, the more I realize what he's doing, which is to create this completely artificial character, but using the character to release some of maybe his own burdens or to work through some of his own issues. A lot of the dialogue's his personal story. But that's not to say that the character of Paul is Brando. He very much created a character very similar to him, but different. But similar enough that people always make that connection that he was playing himself, but I don't think that's, that's true. He knows how to play to the camera, and he always has. And he's always aware the camera's there. And that's why you're never gonna... It, it, it doesn't make sense that he would be... Um, it doesn't make sense that he would be, you know, tricked into showing you his true self or that he's playing his true self. He knows the camera's there. He's giving you only what he wants you to see. Another assumption that many viewers of the film had or even still have was that Brando and his co-star, Maria Schneider, were engaging in real sex. That's what Bertolucci had wanted, and Brando had refused. But certain things you can't fake. The day he was supposed to do full frontal nudity, it was so cold in the Paris apartment where they were shooting that, as he put it in his autobiography, quote, my penis shrank to the size of a peanut. Brando said he paced back and forth across the set, totally naked, hoping for magic. 
He tried to use his mind to will his penis to get bigger, but it didn't work. For what it's worth, Bertolucci said that they did shoot the scene and that it was cut because Bertolucci, at that point in the film, identified too closely with Brando and felt that to put fully naked Brando into the film would be to expose too much of Bertolucci himself. And then there was the morning that Bertolucci and Brando were having breakfast, talking about how to film a certain sex scene. Bertolucci looked down at Brando's baguette, slathered in butter, and then he looked up at his actor like, are you thinking what I'm thinking? When they actually shot the scene in which Brando's Paul uses cold butter as a lubricant, Maria Schneider performed without previous knowledge of what was going to happen. Bertolucci intentionally didn't tell her any details because he, as he put it later, wanted her to react like a girl would react to that surprise. That it wasn't actual intercourse didn't stop Maria Schneider from feeling, as she later put it, a little raped. As big of a deal as The Godfather was, Last Tango in Paris would leave an even greater mark on those involved. Pauline Kael, in what would become her signature moment as a film critic, compared the film's premiere at the New York Film Festival to the debut of Stravinsky's The Rites of Spring, and called the movie itself, quote, the most powerfully erotic movie ever made. At early screenings of the X-rated picture, there were bomb threats, walkouts, and even reports of vomiting. Bertolucci became the most notorious filmmaker in the world. His homeland of Italy banned Last Tango for two years, and he would be presented with gifts of butter on his travels throughout the rest of his life. Meanwhile, Schneider spoke out for decades about the violation she felt while shooting, and Bertolucci lamented never having had a chance to make amends to Maria before she died of cancer in 2011. This episode is brought to you by MUBI, the curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. Every film on MUBI is hand-selected by real people who really love movies, so you get films from iconic directors, from emerging auteurs. There's always something new to discover. And coming up in May, here's something to discover. Gasoline Rainbow, the latest film from the Ross Brothers. They are the acclaimed directors behind another great film you might have seen called Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets. Gasoline Rainbow is about five teens from Inland, Oregon, who pile into a van with a busted taillight to get to a place they've never seen, the Pacific Coast. New York Magazine called it, quote, an ecstatic road trip movie, and that just about sums it up. Gasoline Rainbow opens in U.S. theaters May 10th, and then you can stream it exclusively on Mubi starting May 31st. Best of all, right now you can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash YMRT. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash YMRT for a whole month of great cinema for free. Take the ride. But it was Brando who absorbed the greatest impact of this controversial film, those 10 back-end points which Last Tango's producer had thrown at him as a throwaway paid off when Last Tango became the most profitable film United Artists had released to that point. Brando became rich enough that he didn't have to work all the time, and often wouldn't unless the price was right. 20 years later, in his memoirs, Brando would write that he still didn't know what Last Tango in Paris was about. And while the film was being made, he suspected that Bertolucci didn't know either. Bertolucci, in fact, has essentially spent the rest of his life, even while making and releasing many other movies, explaining what he thinks Last Tango is about. One of his interpretations, which the director gave to Film Quarterly magazine in 1973, 
was that the film was ultimately about, quote, Brando's retreat from being a man of 48, back to being an adolescent, and finally, dying as a fetus. Maybe Brando knew exactly what Last Tango was about, but just didn't want to admit it, because this sort of inability to move past midlife may have hit close to home for him. I think he's, it's, you know, he has his own existential crisis. He's, you know, a man in his mid-40s trying to figure out what the hell he's going to do with his life. You know, it's, maybe acting is fading away. He clearly, I mean, a few years later, he stops doing it for a really long time. So I think he's just kind of processing his own existence through this character. There were many films still to come, some of the memorable. Apocalypse Now, Superman, The Freshman, The Score... But Brando would insist that after Last Tango, he stopped giving all of himself to his work. When Last Tango was finished, I decided I wasn't ever going to destroy myself emotionally to make a movie, he wrote. I felt I had violated my innermost self and didn't want to suffer like that anymore. He also claimed that it didn't matter because audiences couldn't tell the difference when he was phoning it in. But if Brando wasn't really playing himself in Last Tango, then why was he so scarred by the production? I think Bertolucci kind of, you know, because it was very stripped down, you know, is very, you know, sparsely lit, you know, is a very small crew. He created a scenario. There's a story that I, that I read where Brando came to set with all his makeup on. And Bertolucci said, no, you gotta take all that off. This is a simple thing. That might actually be a good metaphor that he made him take off his mask. Last Tango in Paris was radical in a number of ways. But maybe the peak of the fuck you years came in the spring of 1973 when Marlon Brando made the almost unprecedented statement of refusing an Academy Award. When Brando had won his first Oscar in 1954, he had played along. What changed? He can poo-poo the Academy Awards all he wants, but in 1954, he was really happy to get that Oscar. It's clear when he's on stage, he's really happy. Which is fine. You know, he's a young actor. He was 30 years old. He'd been nominated three times in a row, and he finally got it. And it felt, I'm sure it felt great. And since then, he got really burnt out. I mean, this goes back to goes back to all the negative press from Mutiny on the Bounty, when he was being tarred and feathered in the press everywhere. Brando had started getting into the Native American civil rights movement in the 1960s. As he put it in his memoirs, one reason I liked being with the Indians is that they didn't give anyone movie star treatment. They didn't give a damn about my movies. Come 1973, Marlon Brando wanted to send the message to Hollywood that there were more important things happening on the planet. And so, when he was nominated for Best Actor for The Godfather, Brando came up with a plan. In one of her two self-published memoirs about working for Brando, the actor's longtime secretary, Alice Marchok, wrote that a few days before the Academy Awards ceremony, a, quote, very attractive American Indian girl came to stay at Brando's house. Very attractive women were always coming in and out of that house, so Marshak didn't initially think much of it. But the day of the awards, Alice found out that Brando and Sasheen Littlefeather had been working on a four-page speech, which she would deliver should Brando win Best Actor. Brando would be a no-show. He asked Alice to attend the ceremony with Sasheen. 
Alice wore a chocolate taffeta gown that she happened to have lying around. Sashin wore a full-on ceremonial dress, almost a white American's cartoonish idea of what an Indian would look like. At the Oscars, before the Best Actor Award was announced, Alice and Sashin were intercepted by Howard Koch, producer of the show, who begrudgingly agreed that Sashin could accept Brando's trophy should he win, but told them there was no way he'd let her read a four-page speech on the air. The show was running over as it was. Koch had no idea the speech was not an acceptance speech, but a refusal speech, indicting the movie industry for, as Brando would put it in his autobiography, having systematically misrepresented and maligned American Indians for six decades, while at the moment 200 Indians were under siege at Wounded Knee. Now, the Oscars are always only as hip as the oldest, richest guy in the room, and thus this whole bit didn't go over too well. It was a big deal to refuse an Oscar. Only one other actor had ever done it, and George C. Scott didn't use the occasion to shame the industry for their propagandistic support of genocide. So Sashi and Littlefeather goes up, you know, she declines the award, and someone reported that John Wayne was backstage and had to be physically restrained from tearing, from grabbing her and dragging her off stage. I don't know if it's true. It's a great story. With the Sashi and Littlefeather incident, A lot of the PR goodwill Brando had accumulated with his two recent movies went down the drain. The press found all kinds of ways to deplore what Brando had done. And one story that proved to be uniquely sticky was that Sashi and Littlefeather was actually an actress and not a real American Indian. That's bullshit. She was a total Indian. But that's the thing is people try to take it down. Like he does something this broad and people just try and take it away. And try and demean it. And because, you know what, someone wrote an article claiming she wasn't. And then that gets disseminated because people don't want to believe. People want to take it away for whatever reason. It's a very interesting part of our cynical culture. And that incident gave so much hope to every Native American. And and gave so much power to their cause. Brando didn't start and stop with the Oscars. About a month before Oscar night... About 200 members of the Lakota tribe and their supporters began a protest at Wounded Knee, occupying the town where, in 1890, U.S. soldiers had massacred at least 150 Native Americans. At some point during the 71 days of the occupation, Marlon Brando joined the protest on the front lines. With The Godfather and Last Tango both having been released and still dominant within the culture, Brando used his newly resurrected star power not to further his own acting career, but to draw attention to one of the causes that had long been close to his heart. And in doing so, he also drove a stake through the heart of Hollywood's culture of superficiality and corruption. Here's why I think it happened, that 1972 happened for him, is that he he survived. He was a huge artistic and commercial box office bonanza in the 1950s, and he kept doing it, and he survived. Marilyn Monroe didn't survive. James Dean didn't survive. Montgomery Clift didn't survive. All these great artists from the 50s, all these great uh, screen actors from the 50s didn't survive, and there he was. So then you have Francis Ford Coppola and uh, Berlucci, who both were raised on Marlon Brando movies, who both knew that he was wonderful. 
The thing about this period of Brando's career is that in some sense, it was the peak. And in another sense, it was the beginning of the end. Remember how Bertolucci described Paul's trajectory in Last Tango? Paul's fall from power and virility to impotence and death is more or less the same journey taken by Vito Corleone in the first Godfather film. And this idea of hitting a wall in middle age would apply to some aspects of the remaining 30 years of Brando's life. After Last Tango, he would never again achieve the heights of stardom of this so-called comeback period. Meanwhile, his physical beauty declined, as he eventually stopped bothering to whip himself into shape between movies. And then there was tragedy. In 1990, Brando's son Christian shot and killed the boyfriend of his half-sister, Brando's half-Tahitian daughter, Cheyenne. Brando tried to protect both of his kids in the ensuing scandal, sending Cheyenne to Tahiti so she couldn't testify, and mortgaging his Mulholland Drive house to pay Christian's $2 million bail. But Christian was sent to prison, and in 1995, Cheyenne killed herself. Nine years later, after struggling through various ailments, Brando himself died at the age of 80. What I think is after 1972, all the, all of the press that came flying at him and all of this comeback stuff, I think he may have got burnt out on it. And I think that he knew movies weren't enough. So he didn't want to become a star again. He did what he can to try and, you know, take the limelight and take it to his cause. And he realized that, you know, he can only do so much. He started going more and more to Tahiti. And he had a whole movie project about Tahitian culture and what was so great about that. I mean, it's true about the Native Americans. They didn't know who he was. Tahitians had no idea who he was. So he loved it there. But he kept coming back. So there's, you know, something he still loved about it. Clearly, there's something he still loved about it. And it wasn't just for the money. I don't think it was just for the money. Nothing's that easy. Especially with Marlon Brando. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. This episode was written, narrated, and edited by Karina Longworth. That's me. Special thanks this week to our expert guest, Austin Wilkin of the Marlon Brando Estate. You can find more information about this episode and other episodes at youmustrememberthispodcast.com and follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Good night. Yes, the rhythm, the rebel, without a pause, I'm lowering my-